This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome, or welcome back, to self-work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began self-work six and a half years ago now almost in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who are already very interested in psychological or emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who have just read an article or somehow you become interested in mental health treatment and you're looking for some answers. Or to those of you, frankly, who are a little skeptical about the whole thing, and maybe you think therapists are a little wacky? <laughs> oh, I guess some of us are. <laughs> but I welcome all of you, because here at Self Work, we talk about real problems that real people have, and what maybe you can do about it, even if it's just a little thing. I recently posted something about a study group I was doing on my personal Facebook page and explained that I was mixing professional with personal, something that I don't tend to do since people who knew me in high school may not be interested in reading my articles or whatever. Some of them are probably aghast that I'm a therapist from what they remember about me. I got almost an immediate response from someone who said, you love what you do so much, I don't think there's much of a line between the two, meaning between personal and professional, and I had to laugh. She was right. But I still recognize that others might not see it that way, but I definitely live my life that way, out of passion mostly, out of a sense of purpose. But then I came across an article that quoted recent research showing something I found surprising that traditional beliefs and older research had found that overwork leads to depression and anxiety made sense, right? But now researchers are finding that the opposite is true, that people who are already depressed or anxious seek out work for distraction and often can become what someone else might see as a workaholic, especially that someone's significant other. So today, we're going to talk about work addiction, what might lead away from someone's work schedule becoming destructive, what kinds of things can you build into your life to help you curb your appetite for work, and really, all things work-related. Well, not all things, but several. The listener voicemail is from someone who describes herself as experiencing depression while others around her remind her to feel grateful, and she senses they believe she's wrapped up in self-pity. But she also talks about something else in her voicemail. She says, I feel guilty for feeling guilty for feeling guilty. So she's going through a huge guilt cycle. And I tie that in with forgiveness and self-forgiveness and what she learned about forgiveness. We'll focus on how to get out of that cycle. Again, as always, what can you do about it? First, let's hear from BetterHelp, whose therapist might be able to help you crawl out of whatever cycle you happen to be in, if you give them a try. Twenty twenty two is ending, which was a hard year for many, as they're trying to heal from the impact of the pandemic, and now we're welcoming twenty twenty three with more people than ever needing help with anxiety and depression. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact, their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days. And you can talk to them in the first session to see if it's a good fit. If so, you're on your way. But if not, 
rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. You can text, chat, or talk virtually. All of those avenues are open to you. I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. I know how much of a difference it can make. I reached out, and so can you. Here's BetterHelp's offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. There's never a better time than today to reach out and get help. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. The Good Men Project had a good article that listed the basic signs that you might be a workaholic. Here they are. Anxiety about taking time off, guilt when you're not working, general unhappiness, lack of self-care or sleep, holidays like what's a holiday, meaning that there are no holidays for you, effects on the family that you deny or disregard, and the fact that you're always working. Maybe you read your work emails on the toilet, for example. What this list misses are factors that other lists that I found do talk about, a more comprehensive list that distinctly describes the irresistible preoccupation or even obsession with work and the uncontrollable urge to invest time and effort into work activities way beyond what is expected. What are those signs and symptoms? Let's quickly go over them. Working long hours over and above what is expected or needed. Constantly thinking and talking about work. This is someone that you go to a party and they're talking about work. Intrusive thoughts about work when attempting to engage in other activities, meaning they just can't help themselves. Revolving life around work, such as prioritizing or considering work schedules or commitments. When making non-work decisions or plans, meaning... You just schedule your whole life around work. A subjective loss of control to the point where it feels impossible not to engage in work despite insight or acknowledgement of negative consequences, meaning you know it's not good for you, but you do it anyway. Deliberately or inadvertently prioritizing work over other core basic needs, including Depriving yourself of sleep, exercise, good nutrition, spending time with others, or engaging in hobbies or relaxation. In fact, you may not have any hobbies if you're a workaholic. A lack of significant healthy relationships or hobbies outside of work. A lack of enjoyment from tasks that do not involve work, doing to feeling too preoccupied to be fully engaged. This is the person who's always checking their cell phone when they're at their child's recital or soccer game or something. They don't really enjoy being there because they're afraid they're missing something. An inability to switch off and be present, constantly plagued with thoughts related to work. If this is beginning to sound familiar to you, boy, is this ever the episode for you. Using work to avoid or cope with discomfort associated with relationships like grief, trauma, guilt, depression, or significant life events such as death or divorce. You just go to work. Someone dies, you go to work. You found out your spouse had an affair, you go to work. Here's the next to last one. Perfectionistic tendencies whereby extremely high standards are held for the self and others in terms of work effort and performance. You know I've talked a lot about that and we'll talk about it more here in a second. And number 12, obsession with work-related success, often experiencing paranoia or intense fear of work 
failure. Again, you can see how this second list is so much more comprehensive and really digs a lot deeper than that first list. But I wanted you to have both of them to compare and contrast. In the second list, you can certainly hear more of the intense pressure that workaholics are under. Now, if you've been a self-work listener for long, you know I'm passionate about the topic of hidden depression or what I term perfectly hidden depression. And one of the traits associated with that syndrome is allowing achievement, doing work, external success to help you hide from past emotional pain. What's exciting is that recent research is challenging the old assumption that because there's a significant relationship between overwork and psychiatric symptoms like depression or anxiety, that that doesn't mean that work causes depression and anxiety, which was the assumption before. Instead, think of work as like self-medicating, like one would with alcohol or vaping. So obsession with work is really incredible because not only is it socially acceptable, in fact, it's often heavily rewarded. That means you can get by with it. Other people go, well, you know, she's such a hard worker, when really it's an activity that helps you keep deeper emotional pain at bay or in a psychological sense, what's called repressed or unconscious, shoved away from your conscious awareness. And this I am very, very concerned about. Now, since this is a mental health podcast, perhaps many of you can hear that these descriptions, especially the the longer, more comprehensive list, might also apply to someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, where preoccupation with doing things extremely well and efficiently, meaning usually the way they do it, or where there is little to no room for error, where rumination about certain tasks is constant, certainly OCD might lie in this camp, right? The difference is that with OCD, it usually involves compulsions, which are things you have to do in order to control the anxiety. So not only do you have obsessions about thinking about work or thoughts about work, you have compulsions that you have to do things to decrease that anxiety. And if you don't do those things, anxiety will exponentially rise if those protective strategies aren't followed. Now, what might come up with someone who's a workaholic? You know, rather than anxiety rising, they'd probably try another tactic. They'd stay at work another four hours to do so. But their anxiety might not raise. The purpose of the obsessiveness may be tied into escaping depression or anxiety, but not to the extent of obsessive compulsive disorder. It's not black and white probably fairly gray. Just wanted to bring up the point. But before we paint this extreme dedication to work as all bad, there is a factor that softens its potential destructive effect, and that is engagement, meaning you are passionate about what you're doing. You can work long hours, not take vacations, or when you do have to work some, because there's purpose and meaning for you and your work, and perhaps even your partner is all in as well. They also believe that this kind of time commitment, this kind of at worst frenzied and at best constant attention is necessary to get some kind of very important job done. So engagement can mitigate against this being destructive. But let's look at what happened during the pandemic. Even though many people were working from home, work was perhaps a way of asserting some control and avoiding or soothing depression and anxiety. Because what happened during the pandemic, many people increased their work hours, even though they were at home. For many months during the initial shutdowns, people faced boredom, loneliness, and anxiety. 
In fact, by May 2020, data showed that nearly a quarter of American adults had reported symptoms of depression. In 2019, that figure was 6.5%. So that's a lot of increase. So perhaps a portion of workers self-treated, self-medicated by doubling down on their jobs in order to feel busy and productive. Now, some of you self-workers out there might be saying to yourself, this is the kind of problem I'd love to have. Your struggle is much more in the area of not feeling you're doing enough, of constantly berating yourself for missed opportunities. Well, you may be suffering depression or anxiety that has you so much in its grip that you just aren't risking. You struggle with the energy to get things done that actually need doing. That's a whole other problem, but frankly, I think either end of this busyness or work spectrum can lead to loneliness and even much more dangerous problems. So let's talk about some of those dangerous problems. You would have to be living under a rock somewhere to not realize that suicide rates have skyrocketed. So what does the workplace have to do with that? So let's answer that question with this article out of Forbes. Suicides related to workplace issues are also rising. In 2013, the most available statistics, 270 U.S. employees completed suicide at work, a 12% increase over 2012. Workplace stress is believed to be the leading factor in suicides when employees have little or no control over high job demands. In other episodes, I've called that socially prescribed perfectionism, not having control over the expectations that you feel you must meet. Most employees who attempt or die by suicide have mental health or psychological disorders that haven't been addressed. Male employees are 15 times more likely than females to die by suicide because of workplace issues. One study by the Institute of Health examined the chronic impact of work on suicide. It found that a sample of 63 employees who completed suicide, which is an odd term, I know, but they had depression and anxiety, excessive debt, higher impulsivity, and poorer social support compared to a control group of 112 non-suicidal employees. You can tell I was reading from Forbes about that, but I think this is obviously very important for us to know. So, okay, what can you do about it? There's a thing all of us hear about, which is called work-life balance. Now, there are folks wanting a four-day work week, for example, as many countries other than the U.S. has, or at least they're playing around with it. I got curious and kind of looked, and sure enough, Australia is playing around with a four-day work week pilot. Austria has the shortest average work week in the world, which is 35 and a half hours. Workers in Belgium now have the right to switch to a four-day week, but that's usually four 10-hour days. Canada, there are dozens of companies in Canada experimenting with a four-day work week. Anyway, I'll have that link for you if you're interested as well. But for workaholics, a four-day work week wouldn't really solve the problem, would it? Just as in perfectly hidden depression and really all issues, if you don't see your attitude and habits at work, if you don't see them as a problem, then you're not likely to believe that change would be helpful. I'm reminded of an assignment I give couples. They're to go out to dinner by themselves, by the way, not with another couple, and there are two things they can't talk about, the kids and work. They often look blankly at me and predict there will just be silence. (laughs) But there wasn't silence early on, far from it. What they have forgotten is how to express interest in each other. So, what about the workaholic? Well, if they become burned out, 
if their partner leaves them, for example, we have the recent alleged example of Tom Brady and his wife divorcing because he's a footballaholic. I don't know. Maybe it's just gossip. If someone who's a workaholic realizes that they don't even know their children, or sometimes that light bulb can go on after some tragedy or conflict, or when the kid themselves screams at their mom or dad, your job has always been more important than me, then maybe, if any of these happen, they'll want to change. However, that's not always the case. Someone I worked with many years ago, at least, admitted he was a workaholic and identified with perfectly hidden depression. But instead of addressing those problems, he sadly couldn't get off that treadmill of proving his worth. And the only way he could turn off, I found out much later in our relationship, was drugs. So a secret drug addiction became much more of the issue, which he also resisted addressing. It was all very sad. He's a great guy, really giving and smart. Talk about one of those engaged workaholics. But he had little insight into his addictions and how they were sabotaging actual emotional connection with anyone. Change has to be very, very intentional. You have to want change. You have to decide that the ambiguity and awkwardness of not having something to do in the moment is something you're going to choose. You have to want to learn to play. Whatever status you've achieved, or if you felt as if only your obsession with work was the way you achieved it, you have to allow that belief to change however it will. And then, what can make it worse, or certainly harder, is the pain that you've been hiding from can begin seeping out of that closet you've kept locked and bolted. Or maybe it already has been seeping out, and that's why you're listening to this podcast. Maybe you're like Harry Miller. Last year, he medically quit football, which shocked many. He was an excellent football player from Ohio State and was headed for the NFL, and there just seemed as if there was no stopping him, except he was suicidal, which he told his coach, and he got help. That kind of success in football, and he was also a straight-A student in engineering, took intensive amounts of grueling work, and he knew he was breaking other student athletes have not recognized how close they were, and several D1 college athletes have died by suicide in the last few years. I watched an interview with Harry Miller this weekend. It was actually dated several months ago, but it's very moving, and I encourage you to watch it. I will include the link in your show notes. It's a link from Columbus Monthly. Harry knew he wouldn't survive the ruthless world of football and the ever-constant demands on his mind and his body. And so, he chose life. The choices aren't always that dramatic, but it's always about choice and what kind of life you want to live and create. So let's go back to that idea of how to achieve work-life balance. The Meadows, which is a renowned residential and outpatient treatment facility for addictions, offers their three-step structure for change. First, observation. The first step in detaching from work is developing an awareness of how much you're actually working and when. Write down, keep a journal of what you do in a day in minute detail. Notice your work patterns without judging yourself. Your second step is examination. Think about your priorities. What do you want out of life? Long term, not just short term. Maybe short term and long term. What do you want for yourself and your family? In a previous episode, I shared the concept of time anxiety and to deal with that, making a list of time well spent. Basically, what you do is list your values 
And are you actually giving time to those things you value? How is what you value being expressed in your life through what you do? It takes extreme honesty with yourself to do this kind of work. You may have chosen friends who are also addicted to work. Maybe your spouse is as well, and y'all are leading parallel lives. You might need to go to therapy and try to find out when and where and how you learned that your value lies in your work success. And if you're an engaged workaholic, when do you take breaks? How do you make sure you're being sensitive to others' needs? When do you come up for air so your own vessel is nourished and filled? As one list I saw recommended, you have to make time off as sacred as you make work. So you schedule it and then stick to that schedule as if your life depended on it. Because frankly, it might. The third step is adjustment. How can you restructure your work around those priorities instead of structuring your priorities around your work? This may require communicating with your peers and employer. And as with Harry Miller, it might require immense change. Probably not, but maybe. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a discussion with someone in my field, the mental health field, who told me that she had told her work that given her present personal stressors, she was working all the hours with patients she could. Their response? Well, the number of hours you work matters in our decision-making. I shuddered when I heard that. Now, I understand, bottom line, I've been running a business for 30 years, but I also understand that quality work is far more important than quantity especially given the particular work of therapy. But the message to her was to push. We're supposed to be in the field that's at least trying to model health and balance. I can only hope that it doesn't take some sort of tragedy for this clinic to figure out a better way. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Let's listen to the listener voicemail. Thank you for your article. I know people tell me to snap out of it. They don't actually say the word self-pity out loud, but I can still hear it in their voice. They say, count your blessings. Like, I don't already do that. And then I feel guilty for feeling guilty for feeling guilty. When I first began writing about self-compassion being so important in changing self-destructive patterns of overwork or overachievement, understanding how and why you as a child jumped into a role where you didn't stop, you took what life handed out and made the best of it, but all that backfired terribly due to pockets of secret pain and despair, I was accused of pathologizing courage and resilience. I was not. It's simply that my definition of courage didn't include denial of what may have hurt or been wounding along the way. When someone, as this listener seems to be, fights depression or is fighting depression, others labeling those times when it's harder to cope as self-pity is not only helpful, but damaging. Yes, there are those that assume the role of victim, but they're often angry and resentful people, not necessarily depressed people. So that's my comment about self-pity, but let's look at the cycle she describes. I feel guilty for feeling guilty for feeling guilty. I can best understand this if I use it in a context. Let's say I lied about something and I feel guilty for lying. Okay. But then I feel guilty for continuing to feel guilty. I told the truth. I made amends, but I still feel guilty. 
So I never let myself off the hook. I never let my guilt go. It sounds like that's what she's doing. One of my guesses would be that this listener grew up in a family or a culture where true forgiveness didn't occur. Words that sounded like, oh, of course it's okay, we all make mistakes, were heard. But a week or a month later, well, I'm not sure I trust you with that because I remember what happened last time. So forgiveness never really occurred. Or maybe someone would say, oh, I forgave, but I don't forget. Really? What kind of message does that suggest? I'll forgive you, but there's really nothing you can do to regain my trust or my belief in you. So you're damned from the very beginning, as soon as you make a mistake. True forgiveness means the person who hurt you doesn't have to carry around the guilt. You're willing to trust again. You got over your hurt. You worked through it. So what can this listener do? Of course, I could be off track, and I'm sorry if I am. But I think she can go back and say, who or where did I learn this, that things aren't really forgivable? And how can she give herself permission to let go of feeling guilt and then try to move past that? Allow herself to be angry or grieve or whatever she needs to do about not experiencing true forgiveness. Because if it wasn't given to you, As a child, then you've not learned self-forgiveness as an adult or self-acceptance, whatever we want to call it. I hope this is helpful and that your cycle of guilt can stop, or at least you can choose not to feed it. Good luck to you. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited to tell you that the first Self Work Sundays will be March the 5th on Instagram.com. That's Instagram.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford at 4 o'clock Central Standard Time on Instagram. It's Instagram Live, so you can ask me whatever questions you want to ask me. You can ask me about the podcast. You can ask me about writing. You can ask me about perfectly good depression. You can ask me a question you've always wanted to ask me. You won't be on video, but I will be able to see that you're there by seeing just the numbers and your names. I'm anxious to see what Self Work Sundays do, and I hope there are plenty of you who join. Also, thank you for the ratings and reviews you've left for Perfectly Hidden Depression. There are several new ones there. I so appreciate that. And for self-work. Every time I look at Apple Podcasts and I see someone else saying, Hey, you're back. and We're so glad you are. Or whatever they have to say, it warms my heart. And don't forget, you're my best marketing team. Someone else is reading that too and going, I'm going to give this self-work podcast a listen. It sounds like it's worth it. So thank you to all of you. And thank you for being here today. Please take care of yourself, of the people you love, and of your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work. And I'll see you Sunday, March the 5th. Bye for now.